0: all, whether you know it or not, know at least part of the story of pilot Chesley Sullenberger. You just know him as Sully. 2009, you remember his flight took off from New York City and shortly after takeoff they hit a flock of birds, lost engine power. He and his co-pilot Porter managed to land that plane with 150 passengers in the Hudson River, sparing every life on board. You'd like to think they would receive only praise for such a feat, right? But if you know any of the story, you know they were called to account by the authorities for why they did not divert that flight to another airport. The authorities had done multiple computer simulations that told them that was possible. The clip from the movie I'm about to show you was in a meeting where they gathered with Sully and his co-pilot to discuss that matter. Check this out. Too low, terrain. 50, 40, 30, 20.
1: Successful landing at Teterboro, Broadway 19. Multiple airports, runways, two successful landings. We are simply mimicking what the computer already told us. You know, a lot of toes were stepped on in order to set this up for today. And and frankly, I really don't know what you gentlemen plan to gain by it. Can we get serious now? Captain? We've all heard about the computer simulations and now we are watching actual sims, but I can't quite believe you still have not taken into account the human factor. Human piloted simulations show that you could make it back to the airport. No, they don't. These pilots were not behaving like human beings, like people who are experiencing this for the first time. Well, they may not be reacting like you did. Immediately after the bird strike, they are turning back for the airport, just as in the computer sims, correct? That is correct. They obviously knew the turn and exactly what heading to fly. They did not run a check. They did not switch on the APU. They had all the same parameters that you faced. No one warned us. No one said you were going to lose both engines at a lower altitude than any jet in history. But be cool. Just make a left turn for LaGuardia like you're going back to pick up the milk. This was dual engine loss at 2,800 feet followed by an immediate water landing with 155 souls on board. No one has ever trained for an incident like that. No one. In the Teterboro landing with its unrealistic bank angle—we were not the Thunderbirds up there. I'd like to know how many times the pilot practiced that maneuver before he actually pulled it off. I'm not questioning the pilots; they're good pilots. But they've clearly been instructed to head for the airport immediately after the bird strike. You've allowed no time for analysis or decision making. In these simulations, you take in all of the humanity out of the cockpit. How much time did the pilot spend planning for this event, for these simulations? You are looking for human error. Then make it human. This wasn't a video game. It was life and death. Sully's so right, that's worth a few seconds. Please ask how many practice runs they had. Seventeen. Seventeen. The pilot who landed at Teterboro had seventeen practice attempts before the simulation we just witnessed. The reaction decision time will be set at thirty-five seconds. Thirty-five seconds, not enough time. We only had 208 seconds total, so I'll take it. I'll upload the link.
0: Love that clip. What was the problem with the committee? They failed to take into account the human factor. Why do I share that this morning? I wonder in your walk, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've ever come across someone who either said to you directly or made you feel that if you follow Jesus faithfully, you you should never have a hard question for God. If you follow Jesus faithfully, you should never, ever battle with a doubt. If you've ever encountered someone who either said that or made you feel that way, I would like to to say to them, can we get serious now? (laughs) I can't quite believe you still have not taken into account the human factor. It is natural for humans who are fallen and finite to have questions of a God who says in Isaiah 55, 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Perhaps to ask why would he allow this or that in our world. Just yesterday, we were at our six-year-old's birthday party and I got a text from a friend said, please pray for my nephew. He was uh, attacked by a German shepherd and taken by ambulance to the hospital. Thankfully, he survived. But you can imagine there's a set of parents that may have some questions. Why? Why would God allow this? Think about Nashville, Tennessee. Nine-year-old children and staff at a Christian school shot down by someone deceived by the lies of the enemy. Maybe you wrestle with why would a sovereign God, allow that to happen? We have questions. James Dobson said sometimes we're, we're, we're like an amoeba trying to figure out the ways of a human being, right? His, his ways are higher than ours. That leads me to a question from John the Baptist for Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. Because when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, I'll question, where is he? Prison. prison. He's in a dungeon at, at Herod's Palace. You can go online and, and see this place if you give it a Google. But you think about John. He's a, an outdoor preacher, Right. Mm-hmm. I've been spoiled by Arizona since we've been here over 20 years. This has been a weird winter slash spring. Even when we get two or three days of rain, I get restless, right? I want to be outside again. Imagine John cooped up. Someone said perhaps for a year by this point in Herod's dungeon. Imagine what he was feeling. We know some of what he was thinking. Verse 2, it says, John sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This is John the Baptist. Do you hear the, the deep question there? The disillusionment? Maybe even the doubt. you're like, John the Baptist? This guy who boldly spoke God's truth to all who would come? He prepared the way for the Messiah, baptized Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must become greater. I must become less. That John asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And you may be saying, what is going on with John the Baptist? Well, think about some of what he preached. He preached Jesus would bring judgment on the wicked. Right, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He talked about burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And here he is imprisoned by one of those wicked pieces of chaff named Herod because he preached God's truth to him about his sexual immorality and adultery. I think some of what was going on with John is his expectations of Jesus did not match up with what was going on in his circumstances. Have you ever been there? There may be somebody sitting in here today that find themselves there. A place in your life where your expectations of Jesus differ from what's going on. I talked with a friend this week who was discouraged, fell far away from God, and I asked him if there was any place in his life where this was true, where his expectations didn't match what was going on. And he shared about something that maybe many of us can relate to in this economy. He said, we're always feeling the financial pinch. I see some other people, they're able to do this or that, but we're, we're constantly feeling this pinch. His expectations did, didn't match up with what was going on. Maybe it's medical. I had expected God to heal this by now, but it's still going on. Maybe it's a relationship. I've been praying for God to mend this broken relationship, but as I sit here this morning, it's still broken. Listen, we have something to hold on to as believers today that John didn't have yet. Paul wrote in Romans eight twenty eight. he said, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, sometimes we see that external good. Like maybe you go through a trial and through it you're able to share Jesus with someone and you see him get saved and you're like, there it is, there it is. But how many of us know that there are times where we don't see the external good coming out of a trial? I've been there. I, I like what Alvin Plantinga did with this. He said, listen, if, if you're out camping and you look inside your tent and you don't see a St. Bernard." There's good reason for believing there's no St. Bernard in there. But if you look in your tent and you don't see a no see those little bugs whose, whose bites are out of all proportion to their size, <laughs> there's not necessarily good reason for believing they're not there. And he says, why do we assume that this external good is a St. Bernard? Sometimes it may be a no see that, that we in our fallen finite minds just can't see. I think about John, and one thing I want to ask God is, was his imprisonment part of God's plan to help in that process of of him becoming less and Jesus becoming more? I don't know. I want to ask God that someday. But how many of us relate to John? Doesn't it come to expectations? Like, we have our definition of what good is, right? Humanly speaking, good means healthy. Wealthy and comfortable. <laughs> what are God's definitions of good? I think of things like lives that are holy, set, set apart to Him. Lives that are Christ-like, lives that are, are humble. And listen, while we as believers may not always see the external good that comes out of our trials... We can know one thing God is always working for in the middle of our trials. Because right after that verse where he says he works all things together for good in Romans 8.28, he explains that good. Romans 8.29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What if we would grab onto that? Instead of saying, I'm in a trial, God must have abandoned me to say, Whoa, no, God's right here with me. He loves me and he loves me so much. He is working to shape me to be more like his son, his beloved son. And I think about that. I think about something one of the speakers at Truth Quest told to our teenagers. I've heard a lot of talks about suffering. This one woke me up. He told those kids, this life right now is the only chance we have to grow more like Christ. Don't waste it. We get to heaven, we're, we're conformed to his image. Right now is a chance we get to say, hey, Lord, please take every moment of my life, including the hard times. Help me cooperate by faith. Make me more like your son. And I think about John the Baptist here. And if you ever find yourself disillusioned, depressed, even doubting, it may comfort you to know that you're not alone. John the Baptist, the bold, the fiery, the faithful, had his own legitimate questions. I have been there. What did he do with them? This is important. He sent them to Jesus. He sent the questions through his disciples. To Jesus. And I want to talk to you about that. It is so important as a believer that you don't deny the questions you have. They come. We live in a fallen world. Don't bottle it up. Don't just put on a plastic smile for the people around you and pretend like you don't have them. We all have them. Send it to Jesus, take it to the Word of God. That could be the difference between driving you deeper in your walk with Him and driving you away. Take it to him. Take it to another believer in Christ and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? Send it to him. What's Jesus' response? The one who prepared the way for him has a question about if he's the one. Well, Jesus is going to take him to the word of God. He's going to show John how his own ministry fulfilled prophecy from centuries earlier. You say, I don't see that. I just see Jesus telling about signs that he's doing. Look look at Jesus' answer in verse 4. Jesus answered John's disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You say, how is that telling John that he's fulfilling prophecy? Because John was a faithful Jew. He knew his Old Testament, including the the book of Isaiah. And I want you to listen to what's written in Isaiah 35, starting at verse 3. If John's mind went here, think about how this hit him in his cell. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. And then Jesus in, in, in Isaiah, excuse me, God in Isaiah is going to have a part that's not fulfilled yet, as John sat in prison. It says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That had not happened yet. Herod was in power. John was in his prison. But then Isaiah goes to a part that had been fulfilled already, just what Jesus was talking about. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see what Jesus is doing? It's as though he's saying to John, look, the parts that have been fulfilled already and are being fulfilled should encourage you to believe that the parts that have not yet been fulfilled will. Hold on. Hold on. Verse 6, Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What is he saying there? Jesus is saying, there are times where I will defy your expectations. Don't let that throw you off the chase. Don't let that make you walk away. So what's Jesus' assessment of John? In light of this hard question. How would he speak of John to the crowd that's there after this? Would he, like my friends used to say, would he would he put John on blast? Like, bruh, this guy saw the Holy Spirit come down on me. How dare he ask this question? Would he take that approach? No. Quite the opposite. He commends John for his faithful ministry. Look at verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What would you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What's that? That's some politician saying, which way are people thinking? And I'm going to make that my platform. It's a preacher saying, I'm going to preach just what they want to hear so we can fill this place up. Right. Was that John? (laughs) Not at all. One man accurately said he he was the wind shaking the reeds. (laughs) Right. Jesus is saying that wasn't him. Verse eight, he says, what then did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Again, the answer is no. John wore camel's hair. He lived in the desert. He was not some people pleaser who climbed the ladder into comfortable places by kissing up to the wicked, right? He was a truth preacher. Remember, he looked at the religious authorities and said, you brood of vipers. Even Herod, he was in prison because he had spoken the truth to him. Verse 9, Jesus says, what then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, I'm more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. It's right out of the book of Malachi. Far from putting John on blast, he he commends him. He commends him. And I think at least part of what's going on here is Jesus is acknowledging the human factor. He's acknowledging the human factor. Like you and I, John did not have any practice runs at this. He was born. He was called. He jumped into his ministry and did it faithfully. And now he's in prison. And I think about that. And I think about, man, believer, when you have hard questions or moments of doubt, the the enemy comes along right away to condemn you. You call yourself a believer and you got that question? Somebody needs to hear this today. What if Jesus' assessment of you in your moment of questioning is more gracious than your own assessment of yourself? God knows you're made of dust. He knows I'm made of dust. Think of Psalm 103, 13. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame." He remembers that we are dust. Listen, believer, you have a hard question for God today. I want to encourage you to show the same grace to yourself that Jesus does. Then he goes on to say something about believers this side of the cross, including you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He continues his commendation of John. Then listen to this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What in the world is he talking about? He's saying believers this side of the cross have something that John never had in his earthly ministry. You think about the season we're celebrating here. You know what it is? We have the crucified and risen Savior living inside of us. What a privilege. But I want to go on to talk about the kingdom under attack. How many of you can look around the world and say God's kingdom is under under fire? Verse 12 is a notoriously complex verse, and I encourage you to study it for yourself. But if we take it as God's kingdom being under attack, I want you to listen to the words here. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Is that not exactly what leads to questions sometimes? Isn't that what led to John's question? The kingdom was under attack by wicked Herod? We can look around the world and see ways where God's kingdom, God's truth, God's ways are under attack. We saw ripples of it in our own state this week in the aftermath of the shooting. We saw the press secretary of our governor resign after putting up a tweet with a woman with two guns. Thank us when we see transphobes. Attack on God's ways. A God who created man and woman in his image as male and female. God's kingdom under fire causes us to question sometimes. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. If you are willing to accept it. That's an important phrase in this whole passage. And it's related to what we're about to read in verse 15. Jesus is going to hit on a key issue. Willingness to acknowledge the truth. In verse 15, he says, He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Now, when he says ears to hear, does, does he just mean it went in the auditory canal and you understood the words? No, when Jesus talks about ears to hear, it's that you receive the truth in faith and, and live it out in faith. It's kind of like when I get home and Carolyn says, did you see my text about picking up some milk? Does she want to know if I just read the text? No, she wants to know if I got the milk. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about. How does if you hear God's word here on Sunday morning. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you received him in faith? And are you following him? Which leads to where we're going to close. There's a huge difference between honest questions like John's And illegitimate skepticism. He's going to talk about illegitimate skepticism. Verse 16. He he looks at that crowd and he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces. Calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, scholars believe with the flute and the dance, it's kids playing, playing wedding, a celebration. Kids love playing that stuff, right? I remember when I was six, I had a little girl ask me if I wanted to marry her. I said, I can't. I got to get home for dinner. Even <laughs> as a young boy, I love food. But kids love playing that stuff. The second one, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. They're playing funeral, right? But, but what's going on? Hey, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's going on? And nothing would make those kids happy. Always looking to argue. You won't play wedding. You won't play funeral. Always looking to disagree. You say, why is Jesus saying that? What's he talking about? He gets to it in verse 18. He looks and says, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. Son of man, Jesus, came quite differently, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's going on? He's saying there's some people that nothing, nothing will make them happy. This is very different from the honest question that John had. Listen, I want to encourage us. If you have questions for God today, it's worth asking, which kind of questions do you have? Are they legitimate, honest questions like John's? The kind where you're really seeking the answer. You're going to take it to God. You're going to take it to his word. You're going to take it to other believers in Christ and look for the answer. The kind where if, if I see the truth, I, I will have ears to hear, and I will believe it and surrender to it. Is that what kind of question you have? Take it to them. Or is it the other kind? Is it this illegitimate skepticism? The kind where I, I'm not really looking for the answer. I like staying in limbo. In fact, I, I really like being contrary to God. The kind where even if the truth was right in front of my eyes, if I saw it did make sense, I'm not admitting it. Because it would require me to surrender the throne of my life from myself to him. What kind of questions do you have today? And I I encourage you, if God's convicting you through that second kind of question, now is the day of salvation. Cry out to him, say, God, forgive me for this hard heart that will not receive the truth. Open my ears to your word. Maybe go to the book of John with an honest heart and say, show me. Jesus is real. Show me God. Where we wrap up today, I'm going to say the proof is in the pudding. Jesus closes by saying, yet wisdom is justified By her deeds. The truth will be revealed. This is important to hold on to because even today we have a Messiah who often defies our expectations. You think about the disciples. Carolyn shared with me a passage this week that jumped out at me. Even his close circle. he, He explained to them over and over. These three times that I know of that he was going to die and rise again. Listen to them and maybe you relate to Mark 9 31. He was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. He was just too different from their expectations. That side, right? I think about that on Palm Sunday. Yeah, there were people there that worshipped him as he came in. But there are many others in Israel who were disappointed with a man who had come into Jerusalem humble, riding on a donkey. Why is that disappointing? Because many wanted a king or a general on a war horse. We want him to conquer Rome. He defied many expectations. Instead of taking over a Roman throne in his earthly ministry, he was heading to a Roman cross to suffer a criminal's death for their crimes and yours and mine. To deliver them and us from far greater enemies than Rome, Satan, sin, and death itself one day future later in his time the risen christ will strike down every wicked kingdom and set up his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth but what about us who live in the meantime i think we need to hold on to two realities as we close one is realize we have a messiah who will at times defy our expectations. But realize also that in the process, he offers us something better than we could ever imagine. Lord, I come before you today, and I thank you for this passage about John the Baptist. I thank you that it is included in your word. If, if, if your word was made up, the authors would have left this out. One of your main prophets having questions, it's in there because it's true, it's real, and and we relate. Lord, I pray for anyone in here with honest questions like John, going through some stuff right now and just feeling like you're not meeting their expectations. Help them in faith to bring their question to you, to bring it to your word. Show them the answers in your word where they're there. And in those situations where your presence is the only answer. May your presence carry them through. I pray for any in the room who are convicted by the Holy Spirit saying, if I'm honest, I don't have real questions. I'm an illegitimate skeptic because I want to be Lord of my life. Let them know in this very moment that you love them every bit as much as you love John the Baptist. Help them humble themselves before you and cry out, Lord, open my ears to the truth of who the Savior is. Show me if he's real. Drive them to your word, to your people. Let them know they're not alone, that you're pursuing them. Lord, as we think about this holy week, you entering Jerusalem knowing well you would be headed to a cross we thank you for dying for my sin The sin of each in this room we thank you for rising again victorious over everything that held us captive thank you for defying expectations and bringing something better than they could have dreamed of Lord I pray as we take our offering this morning it would be from hearts that just say thank you